Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala Rasulihi al-Kareem. Ababad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings in the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we are going through Iqbal's Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam. Some very, very brief preliminary information. Iqbal dies in the late 1930s. He is part of the movement to establish uh, what becomes uh, a decade after his death, Pakistan. And he is known through two types of works, poetry and prose. And the general sentiment is that his poetry is for the masses. And his primary prose work is this, the Reconstruction of Religious Thought, but he's also known for his dissertation, which was the development of metaphysics in Persia, and also published letters that he's had, especially with Jinnah and, and uh, others. And, and so the essence of this book is the title itself, The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam. And implicit in there is that there is a need for a reconstruction of, of religious thought. So, so at first we're going to go through the preface. And uh, <clears throat> let's jump uh, right into it. Why don't you start reading and uh, tell you what, why don't you read the whole thing and then we're going to reread it. And then I'm going to interrupt you during the rereading. Okay. Preface. The Qur'an is a book which emphasizes deed rather than idea. There are, however, men to whom it is not possible organically to assimilate an alien universe by reliving as a vital process that special type of inner experience on which religious faith ultimately rests. Moreover, the modern man, by developing habits of concrete thought, habits which Islam itself fostered at least in the earlier stages of its cultural career, has rendered himself less capable of that experience which he further suspects because of its liability to illusion. The more genuine schools of Sufism have, no doubt, done good work in shaping and directing the evolution of religious experience in Islam, but their latter-day representatives, owing to their ignorance of the modern mind, have become absolutely incapable of receiving any fresh inspiration from modern thought and experience. They are perpetuating methods which were created for generations, possessing a cultural outlook differing in important respects from our own. Your creation and resurrection, says the Qur'an, are like the creation and resurrection of a single soul, a living experience of the kind of biological unity embodied in this verse requires today a method physiologically less violent and psychologically more suitable to a concrete type of mind. In absence of such a method, the demand for a scientific form of religious knowledge is only natural. In these lectures, which were undertaken at the request of the Madras Muslim Association and delivered at Madras Hyderabad and Aligarh, I have tried to meet, even though partially, this urgent demand by attempting to reconstruct Muslim religious philosophy with due regard to the philosophical traditions of Islam and the more recent developments in the various domains of human knowledge. And the present moment is quite favorable for such an undertaking. Classical physics has learned to criticize its own foundations. As a result of this criticism, the kind of materialism which it originally necessitated is rapidly disappearing. 
and the day is not far off when religion and science may hitherto may discover hitherto unsuspected mutual harmonies. It must, however, be remembered that there is no such thing as finality in philosophical thinking. As knowledge advances and fresh avenues of thought are opened, other views, and probably sounder views, than those set forth in these lectures are possible. Our duty is carefully to watch the progress of human thought and to maintain an independent critical attitude towards it. Okay, very good, Mashallah. Now let's start right from the beginning again. Yeah. The Quran is a book which emphasizes deed rather than idea. What do you think about this? Explain this to me. What does that? How do? You, what do you, what does that mean to you? Um. So I feel like this statement by itself requires like a thesis by itself. Sure. Um. Uh, or at least like evidence. Mm -hmm. But um, what I'm getting from this argument is that uh, Quranic like actual text is about practice and mm -hmm. not like theology and um, philosophy which came later as like defense mechanisms from what I understand mm -hmm. um, I would say that's absolutely part of it okay. right and what we'll see more of a little bit later on is the concrete versus the abstract and so the Quran is a book which emphasizes action now uh, action with an asterisk has as you specifically has heard from me many many times how much of the Quran is actually commands like you said, like 5 to 10%. Yeah, literally 5 to 10%. And so it is not that it's prescribing actions, but it is seeking manifestation into action. So most of the Quran is focused on, on uh, informing the reader, informing the believer, how does reality operate? How has it operated? And how have people responded to reality? And the more I know of that, the more... That should, on its own, affect my my actions. So, when you consider that a lot of the Quran is like stories, how does that relate to action? Is it just that people in the past acted in a certain way instead of elaborating on their philosophical like thoughts? So, part of it is exactly that, and so part of it is, you know, one function of the stories is is to give you a type of history, right? This happened in history. But when we look at what are patterns in the stories, we see that they are capturing the behaviors of people regarding revelation, regarding prophets, regarding how nature operates. And so um, we also have metaphors that are doing a similar thing. And, and so uh, uh, you have the world in front of you as an opportunity. You have life in front of you as an opportunity. And a fundamental question is, what are you going to do with it? And so inaction is also an action. Okay. And so then the Quran is prescribing what to do with your life, especially with uh, mention that there are consequences to your actions too. There are consequences to your inaction in this world and the next world. As opposed to sitting back and just reflecting, pontificating without any actual action. So, so it's saying yeah. that pontificating without action is uh, blameworthy or... Potentially blameworthy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's is potentially that, is that idle talk. Is that what the Quran is saying or is that what Iqbal is saying? So this is what I'm understanding Iqbal is saying about, about the Quran. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, next sentence. There are, however, men to whom it is not possible organically to assimilate an alien universe by reliving as a vital process that special type of inner experience on which religious faith ultimately rests. So a lot of these points, it's often easier to work backwards. So the last part of this is the special type of inner experience on religious faith, on which religious faith ultimately rests. So now we're talking about Iman. Mm -hmm. And Iman is resting on something taking place inside uh, that we might call clarity or we might call sweetness, right? So we have the famous hadith, a couple hadith that you will taste the sweetness of faith, uh, literally sweetness of faith, if you do such and such. Mm -hmm. If you love for Allah and you hate for the sake of Allah, uh, or if you love someone just purely for the sake of Allah and, and, and such. And, and so Iman is resting in that realm, which we're saying is essentially in your heart. Okay. Go ahead. You're so the beginning of the sentence is saying that there are people that you can't make them understand that organically. Okay. So let's build back to that in yeah. a second. Okay. So a special type of inner experience and then a vital process. Vital process here would be life giving. Can you explain that? So, so Iman itself is something life-giving. It's animating you. Yeah. So what is it that makes you wake up in the morning? Usually for most people, it's because you got to go to work. Okay. And so Iman itself being the thing that charges you, that animates you. Now, the piece before that, which is what you're speaking, there are, however, men to whom it is not possible organically to assimilate an alien universe by reliving this imam thing. So there are some people okay, who can't make it all fit together, just purely on faith. So what do I mean by this? Uh, think of the Tablighi mm Jamaat, -hmm. that the person who is the biggest beneficiary of the Tablighi Jamaat is probably not a person who is very intellectual. Meaning their target audience is not going to be the person who wrestles with ideas. Okay? Their target audience is the person who they can get to come in and make their prayers. And then they have this male bonding that takes place as part of the process of making their prayers, whether it's staying together for a weekend, for a week, or what have you. And for their target audience, it's super successful. But they're going to be the intellectual types for whom that doesn't work. That what they're seeing is I am in this world, but I don't fit in this world. Okay. And for me to even have this Iman in my heart, there's intellectual hoops that I need to go through to, to untie these knots in my understanding of how things work. So this is the minority. This is the minority, but they also tend to be the people that influence everybody else. Okay. So it doesn't mean that they're the rich, or the wealthy class. It doesn't even necessarily mean that they have the PhDs. So, so Gramsci, so he's this Italian, yeah. you know, um, he has this idea of the organic intellectual. Um, and part of the idea is that in every crowd, you have that person or those people who they just, they wrestle with things and they can't just quite take things in. They have to digest it. It has to make sense to them. And once it makes sense to them, then it becomes rock solid inside of them. And so that seems to be also what Iqbal is talking about. So, so there are some people for whom deed is sufficient. 
All you need to do is come to the masjid and we'll get you to make your prayers and make your prayers and make your prayers. But there's some other people who, who understand, yeah, that's what works for you. But I have these puzzles that I need to resolve on how reality works or my place in it. And those guys are often mocked by the rest, but that's literally how these people's brains operate. So these, this minority of people has existed in every generation since yeah. the Prophet? Uh, every generation, period. Okay. Inshallah. I mean, Allah knows best. And, and so it's just, that's how they are. And is that an intellectual process, like a rational process, or is that an emotional process? I'd say we would imagine it to be intellectual, uh, but it is not purely intellectual. It's more that most people don't really need to think about things. They need you to tell them what to do, and they do. But there's some people who need to think about things. But is that, like, deliberation? Is that, like, um... Is that like a like a theological type of quandary, or is that like an emotional coming to terms with like God? Or something? I, I would say it would be either or, but the point is that they're wrestling with things. Okay, you know that for them are almost existential as ideas and 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 such. Uh, but for the layperson, it's like who cares? You know, so so imagine me thinking that all right. Um, one person will say, all right, I make my five daily prayers and I do these extra subhanallah, subhanahu rabbi al-a'la's and such and I get more reward. And then this person is thinking, okay, we don't know why we have two sajdas in one ruku. Uh, is there, what are additional messages that are taking place here? And what else am I then missing? And then what becomes the most ideal part of all this? You know, what's the biggest benefit? You know, anything. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be other another group of people where that just becomes their escape from responsibility. But there's some people who actually truly want to have belief. But they have, this is the process that they have to go through. So what are the stakes of that deliberation? Like, if you... Obviously, you can go either, like, yeah. towards God or away from God. So like, Those are the stakes right there. And so... So if this is a person left on their own, then um, then they're really uh, vulnerable, you know, to going into going down the wrong direction. Um, what Iqbal is going to be leading to is that even though that's a minority, that is with the state of modern education, that is closer and closer to the norm. Make sense. So. Um what is closer to the norm is being... This type of person, meaning I'm saying an increase of this type of person. Okay. Yeah. Because of modernity? Modernity and modern education. Okay. Modern education tends to be much more philosophical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like critical thinking over just yes. like... Critical thinking is probably the key term here. Okay. Yeah. Because I was talking to my dad and um, like I was asking him about like what is it that keeps people in Bangladesh like Muslim? Yeah. And... He said, it, it's not like lectures, it's not like going to the mosque for prayers. It's He said it's family. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And like, I asked him, so do you think that it's necessary for 
do you think critical thinking is necessary for practicing Islam? And he said no. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of lines up with this. I would say no for most people. For most people, okay. Yeah. But if you're being raised in an educational system that's all about critical thinking, mm-hmm. then you can't escape it. Right. Because you can keep asking the question, why? Right. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Right. And, okay. So, moreover, the modern man... Wait, can I pause one second? Yes. Why is it, so, why is it an alien universe? So, there's, uh, I read this a couple of ways. Uh, uh, the idea of assimilation is, is this, it's coming to become at one with the world that you're in. Okay. Okay. And I think part of the modern experience is this alienation. So alienated, alien, alien universe, when we hear those terms together in 2019, mm-hmm. we're imagining the blackness of outer space. Uh, I don't think that's what he is saying. Mm-hmm. I think he's saying this existence in which everybody's alienated from everybody else. Which is much more uh, uh, pronounced in 2019 than in 19, you know, whatever this is, 1930, uh, whatever. And, and this idea that we are, the default of this era is that we're all literally disconnected from everything. And the goal is to assimilate, meaning the goal is to reconcile, to bring things together into one harmonious existence. That's why I'm reading his word choice here. It's not saying that faith is alien to the human. So I'm saying that includes that. That we'll see in a couple sentences later. But when he talks about liability to illusion. Am I asking too many questions? Is it like... Oh, no, no. Okay. Come on. So there are, however, men to whom it is not possible organically to assimilate an alien universe. That it's just everything does not fit together for me, and I need to make it fit together. And for the common person, who cares if it fits together? I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. Moreover, the modern man, by developing habits of concrete thought, habits which Islam itself fostered at least in the earlier stages of its cultural career has rendered himself less capable of that experience, which he further suspects because of its liability to illusion. Once again, let's take it piece by piece from the reverse. Mm -hmm. So that which today we're speaking of Mm -hmm. as the religious experience, he's saying modern man, now keep in mind, it's not limited to Muslims. Modern man is skeptical about it, Mm -hmm. right? That this could just be your emotions. You didn't actually experience something. Meaning, uh, the experience might be the same, but the acceptance of it is far less. Experience of what exactly? The the feeling uh, and experience of iman. Okay. Uh, Let's let's think about this way. Remember, uh, in the past, we've had discussions about miracles, and I suggested that okay, often in our society, when we speak of miracles, we speak of miracles as a violation of science. Mm -hmm. And I said, what if you think of a miracle as the absolute perfect thing happening at the perfect time. Okay. So Musa salam comes to the sea, he's being chased by Thur'aun. Okay. And then he hits the staff in the ground, the sea splits into two mountains of water. They walk through, they make it to the other side, 
Pharaoh's people come, water comes crashing down on them, right? So that's how we're taught what happened. And what we often emphasize is the fact of the sea splitting. That's, you know, a miraculous thing. But what if the sea split uh, two hours late? Mm-hmm. Okay, so he hits the staff, nothing's happening. Pharaoh's people come, devour everybody, and then the sea splits. Okay, then it's pointless. Mm-hmm. Science has still been violated, but that's not the, the important part. The important part is that thing happened at the perfect time. Not only the perfect time for them to uh, get through, but even came crashing down at the perfect time on Pharaoh's people. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, if we look at a miracle as the perfect thing happening at the perfect time, then <coughs> you might find many examples in your life of a miracle happening. Otherwise, if we're looking for science to be violated, then the only time you're probably going to see it is, you know, you know, if you have a gin experience or something like that, right? So, um, by that definition of a miracle being the perfect thing happening yeah. at the perfect time, then a miracle would just be God exerting his will in Which a way is, that benefits his creation. And how is that different than the other one, the common definition? Uh, uh, the common definition was like a violation of science? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it matters. It if God chooses to exert his, way, his will in a way that violates science, then that's how it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And so, it can happen with or without um, uh, yeah. So, Okay. Sorry. It's all good. Um, and so, so what we're saying is that uh, uh, the key in, in point of the miracle is that Allah Ta'ala is making something happen. And he's making the perfect thing happen at the perfect time. I'm just suggesting that that's the part to emphasize rather than the violation of science. Okay. Nevertheless, let's talk instead about jinns. Okay. Where's this echo coming from? Okay. In any case, okay. So, uh, if I say there's a possession taking place, what is the modern man going to say? No, it's nothing really happened. Uh, you know, association with that. Yeah, exactly. It was you know a mental health thing or something like that. Uh, or the perfect thing happening at the perfect time, modern man is going to be skeptical of that. That's just coincidence. And you know, I have an example of this of a teacher of mine who uh, who's a non-believer who who was getting ready to get released from the hospital after a big surgery, mm-hmm. big surgery. And the, and he's playing some music he likes, and the doctor comes in to literally talk about that piece of music, because the doctor likes this piece of music too. While they're talking, uh, this person's blood vessel ruptures, and he collapses, and they have to take him for another emergency surgery. And if the doctor wasn't there, this man would have been dead. Yeah. So according to my definition, it was the perfect thing happening at the perfect time. Okay. According to his definition, it was coincidence. So how do you, how do you, um, is there a way to rationally prove, um, obviously that's like a loaded question, um, but is there a way to rationally prove that 
it wasn't a coincidence? Uh, the fact that it's a coincidence, I would also agree with. But I'm saying it's willful. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Like so, we don't we, we don't see the will. So the modern the modern thinker will say would say no, it was an accident. And I'm saying it's willful. So the modern thinker is saying it's a coincidence. I'm saying it's a coincidence, but I'm saying it was a willful coincidence. And and so this comes down to how are we defining reality? Mm-hmm. And so the modern thinker is leaning away from will being uh, part of the process of anything. As in divine will. which Or external will, that's what we mean by divine will. As opposed to a series of accidents. Because evolution is essentially a series of accidents right. in this outlook. And I would say, okay, will evolution happen or not? Sure, let's say it happens, but it's divine will. Right. And thus, in the modern era, where we can infer he's going for, with this, is that uh, the there's a necessity to facilitate iman into for the modern mind that has not that uh, the the previous methods of the past would not work. That is, I'm suggesting, one of the essences of the whole book. So again, you always hear from me that every generation has to figure out in Islam how Islam works for its time and place. But the modern shift makes this especially important. Okay. okay. So, a little bit more. Okay, has rendered himself less capable of that experience which he further suspects because of liability to illusion that we've talked about. Habits which Islam itself fostered, at least in the early stages of its cultural career. This is both a comment that he's giving as well as a criticism. Mm-hmm. That the type of thought that the Quran is, is promoting is this concrete thought. Not necessarily skepticism, but defaulting to the concrete and then deriving you know, thought from the concrete first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And essentially what he's suggesting is that later on we became Aristotelian and we lost our way. This is what he'll be saying later on in the book. Can you um, just give me a brief overview of what Aristotelian means? So we'll say not say Aristotelian yet. We'll say we became philosophical and that became the lens through which we started looking at things. Okay. So... Um, he is not seeing like Kalam and like theology as a natural byproduct of the existence of existence of God. Uh, I'd say he's not addressing that part yet, mm-hmm. but related to what you're saying is that um, the idea started preempting the action. Okay. And the action is coming first, or the concrete is coming first. Okay. So, so for people who um, who need to puzzle over like the philosophical dimension of it what is his um like prescription for them is it to like just act while pontificating or is it to it's it's first figure out what is concrete okay figure out you know of all the person's ideas and such first figure out what is concrete is that not is that not actionless pontificating itself not necessarily you know it's is uh take an extreme version of this uh, you know, do you exist? 
Yeah, that's concrete. Um, is the day of judgment concrete? So that's, and I'm saying you take that as concrete as well. You take God as concrete. Okay. If a person is able to do that, a person may not even be able to do that. So then what is the prescription that the Quran gives if you have doubt about it? Come up with something just as good or better. Which means you need to know the Quran. Okay. And then, you know, for a previous generation, uh, for the generation of the Prophet, we would probably focus on the linguistics and the power of the poetry. That may not be as uh, applicable for someone who's, you know, raised in Chicago in 2019. Um, but you can look at the Quran's depiction of how reality works and compare that and contrast that with uh, any other scripture or philosophy. And there is going to be a concrete element there. Your experience in how life works. That's a concrete thing. Okay, so reflection is still a concrete exercise. Uh, reflection, seeking to figure out what is concrete. Okay. Yeah. So reflection with a goal is a concrete exercise. Can be, yeah. But I'm okay. saying reflection can also just be you know, abstract wandering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So moreover, the modern man, by developing habits of concrete thought, habits which Islam itself fostered, at least in the early stages of its cultural career, has rendered himself less capable of that experience which he further suspects because of its liability to illusion. So modern man is not going to rely upon miracles. Modern man needs something more, something more concrete. So, um, pre-modern people relied on miracles. Um, I think there's an assertion that there is a, uh, a lot of focus on miracles or things that are understood as miracles. Um, but uh, a way, another way to think about this is, you know, think about what we in our community often use as proof for the divinity, divine authorship of the Quran? What are some things we use? Um, scientific miracles in the Quran. So talking about the embryo. Right. Uh, the sea, the two waters that, that don't meet. Mm -hmm. Right. So those types of scientific things that how could someone 1400 years ago have known this? Uh, word for word preservation. And that's basically it. I mean, see if you can even think of anything else. The question was, what are proofs that people use nowadays for the... Yeah, proofs are arguments. Divinity of the Quran? Yeah, divine authorship, yeah. I don't know if you can come up with anything else. That's basically it. And think about how easy it is to poke a hole in both of these. So it's already known in our tradition that the Quran has variant readings. Okay? Right. Which we've talked about in my classes. Uh, although that is also considered to be part of the preserved Quran. Mm -hmm. And then, but you tell that to a common believer, it'll shatter them. Well, they won't believe you, but then it'll shatter them. And the second thing being that, all right, uh, in did the Sahaba understand those ayahs about the embryo that we read to be about the embryo? Did the Sahaba understand those ayahs as being about the embryo or something else? Or is it just that it fits perfectly right now? with what we understand about the formation of the embryo. So what happens if science, quote unquote, advances and it no longer fits? Or look at how huge the Bible is. You're telling me you can't find a couple of passages where you can do the same thing? Uh, I'm sure you can. 
and then that kills whatever whatever is our claim to fame. Now you could say the reverse. The Bible is full of all kinds of things that contradict science. Mm -hmm. And then the biblical person will say, well, science will eventually catch up to this, right? But we still have mention of miracles. And so we would have to exclude the miracles and then maybe we can still make it work. But the bigger problem is that that gives me as a believer permission not to actually know what the Quran is saying. Because the Quranic prescription is if you have doubt, come up with something like this. She means I have to know what it says. And, and so that's, uh, we're living as a community, we're still living in this pre-modern thing, relying upon miracles to justify our belief. And that's why Islam doesn't work for most people. You know, especially your age more than my age. And especially your kid's age more than your age. Because your age, the common question is, why do I need this? At least my age, you know, there's all these other connections and, you know, I have to do this. But the com a very common question I get from your age people is, why do I need to believe in any of this? I don't need this. It doesn't make my life better. It doesn't help me. You know? And so... So for previous generations, the Islam made their lives materially better. Uh, I think we would infer from what he's saying is that you didn't have as much of this type of sentiment, you know, prove to me its benefit because it was already such a fundamental part of your idea, identity, that it was inalienable from your identity. Whereas for us, it's just one of many facets of, of who, who I am, person of color, cisgender, Muslim. Right. And then, and then to add to that, what is the Quran focusing on in terms of miraculous? Not the splitting of the sea. The miraculous is in the creation. Mm -hmm. The commonplace, that's where the miraculous is. Can you repeat that once? So the Quran is, or even to make my point about the, the way we're looking at miracles right now, mm -hmm. what flies around? Hey, look, here's a set of trees that say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, mm -hmm. right? Here's a cloud in the sky that says Allah. And thus, that's supposed to somehow help my faith. Right. Or a celebrity preacher who's saying, look at how the structure is smarter than you are. Okay. Structure meaning? Of the text. Oh, okay. Okay. And what is the Quran saying? Look at the, the, look at the creation of you yourself. Look at the creation of the trees and the clouds and the mountains. That's where the miracle is. Why are you smiling? The echo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes everything more prominent. So, so the Quran is prescribing the miraculous is in all these things that are commonplace, not the anomaly. Mm -hmm. The miraculous is in the commonplace and the, not the anomaly. Yeah. And so the commonplace meaning, look at, you know, look at this plant that's on my desk and look at its amazing structure. So when we say that it's reduced to an aspect of our identity, yeah. in a list of identities, Yeah. That's basically what you were talking about at Night of Light, which was um, that Iman without Iman is... Yes, just identity. identity. Okay. Yeah. And it's an identity that can be discarded or just invoked whenever beneficial. And you said before that um, for most people, Islam is like a hobby yeah. as well. How does that inter interrelate with this? So there are a lot of people who do intellectual type things with Islam, but it's basically more just, you know, uh, you know mental excitement. It would be like me thinking about sci-fi possibilities or traveling to Mars and trying to figure okay. out how. Yeah. 
Is that most people or is that just... I think a lot of the people who are thoughtful, uh, that describes more of them than they might choose to uh, recognize, as opposed to systematically trying to figure out answers. So that would be abstract thinking without a purpose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, what time are we at? Mm. Right, so, still got a few more minutes, inshallah. Okay, next big sentence. The more genuine schools of Sufism have no doubt done good work in shaping and directing the evolution of religious experience in Islam. Okay, then semicolon. But their latter-day representatives, owing to their ignorance of the modern mind, have become absolutely incapable of receiving any freshness and inspiration from modern thought and experience. That part we'll address second. First, let's talk about the first half. The more genuine schools of Sufism have no doubt done good work in shaping and directing the evolution of religious experience in Islam. So, we have goofy Sufis and then we have the real Orthodox Sufis. Uh So, goofy Sufis is not really giving much attention to them. These are people, these are groups that are effectively cults of charisma. Mm-hmm. And so the general principle of the way the Sufis, the Orthodox approach, is that you start with Sharia and then you grow into the way of the Sufis. Right. And so Omar Abdullah, Dr. Omar Abdullah's um, uh, metaphor I love using, which is that Sharia is the milk and the way of the Sufis is the butter that you form from that milk, as opposed to something you form on the side, separate from Sharia. So Sharia is like, is action, is yes. concrete. Yes. Um, so, so suggesting that a person, in order to obtain some sort of sweetness of faith through Tesky or whatever, or Tesalwaf, yeah, you would have to first act the part, kind yeah. of? Yeah, okay. exactly. For the person who needs to grapple with intellectual problems, um, would they just be mindlessly doing actions? So for them, uh, it's a challenge to even get them to get up and do the part. Right. And it's not a lack of willpower. So what is the overall theme or issue problem that we're saying? We're saying the decline of faith is not because people are being selfish. Mm-hmm. The decline of faith is because people, because faith is not relevant. And it's not providing anything relevant. What it's providing is a set of promises and threats. And not much more than that. Right. And it has the capacity to provide so much more than that. Mm. And so the Sufis historically did really, were really strong in giving you steps to go through to develop your Iman. Not unlike the way the the Blijamath are today. Mm -hmm. They're very, very strong. If you're someone who is lives, you know, a regular middle class, lower middle class life, mm-hmm. they have a very strong system to get you to start making your prayers. Right. You know, step by step. You're talking about the Tablighis, right? Yeah. Okay. So he's saying their Latter-day representatives, the Latter-day representatives of Sufis, 
have become incapable of doing this because they haven't figured out how to partake of modern thought and modern experience. And a simple example of that is the sheer power of media mm -hmm. in a person's thinking. Right. In their self-perception, their perception of the world. You know, who do you know that actually part, um, includes that as part of a person's tuskia? Okay, it just, it's not even on the map. And people don't even understand what I'm saying. You know? And we're saying, okay, so think about this. What are some of the big shifts from pre-modernity to modernity? Okay, one is that uh, God and the human, and, or God, the soul, and the hereafter are not as much of a priority. Science is dominating. And I'm saying another thing to, uh, that's part of post-modernity, but also modernity, is the dominance of media as part of our consciousness and everything that goes with it, which includes this sense that there's always an audience. And thus, here's a picture of me for the audience. But even if I don't have this picture, there's still this consciousness that there's an audience. Mm -hmm. And think of what that does for your own self-consciousness then. And so, so essentially what, what I'm pulling from what he's saying is that uh, the Sufis that had this very strong history are failing miserably because they're still using old techniques that were still strong and still can give benefit, but they're not really addressing what is happening right now. So, for example, Iqbal would say that the practice of prescribing like dhikr is outdated. It is partially outdated only in the sense that it hasn't been tested as well with the onslaught of media. So dhikr itself is a tool, right? but they haven't updated their tools. So, so who has authority to like reevaluate the benefit of those tools? That we'll see what he says. I mean, essentially, he's going to say it's, it's a whole uh, community responsibility, which means it's effectively on the scholars. I mean, that's essentially where he would, uh, the direction we can assume he's okay. going to go. Uh, so let's do one more sentence because it's continuing the point of the Sufis. They are perpetuating methods which were created for generations possessing a cultural outlook differing in important respects from our own. I mean, one easy uh, respect, uh, one easy way is most of them were existing in Muslim-majority populations, mm -hmm. which is completely different than the environment you and I grew up in. Right. Is that, is that as self-explanatory as it seems? Uh, I, I would say it is in light of what we already just said. Yeah. You know, um, it's like what they had worked, uh, it just doesn't work as much. And so it, uh, it differs in important respects from our own. And he says, your creation and resurrection, says the Quran, are like a single, like creation and resurrection of a single soul. This is an important, uh, uh, an interesting reference at this point, because it's as though he's saying this is a generational issue. It's afflicting the whole population. I think that's fair at this point, especially in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of media and secularism. You know, if I ask a classroom, you know, how many of you uh, oppose secularism mm -hmm. in a Catholic university? Most of the class is not going to raise their hand. Mm -hmm. Most will say we support secularism because it keeps religions under control and this and that. And that's another big significant thing. And so this is 
not a problem that one person's having or even a minority is having. Just like I said, the reason for this massive decline of faith is because Islam as we have it doesn't work for this generation. All the raw materials are there. The Prophet is there, peace be upon him. The Quran is there, peace, you know, Kitab uh, Allah. Um, we have all these thousand year of history. But as we are practicing, it doesn't work for us. So, did every generation have this sort of upheaval? Uh, yeah, every century. So the Prophet himself speaks about this. Um, that this is something that happens every century and someone comes along and revives yeah. and reforms and everything, right? That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Uh, I think he's suggesting that the shift that's taking place right now is an even bigger shift than previous generations. Okay. Because I, um, I know <coughs> Ihya was written as as sort of that like generational critique. For that one, right? yeah. What was the critique of that generation? I mean, <coughs> uh, among the many critiques that I'm familiar with, or the few critiques I'm familiar with, there's many. Um, one was the over-fiqification uh, of Dean, mm -hmm. to the point of doing a uh, fiqh understanding of everything, and it was lifeless. And so one of the big things he does is that he merges the self with fiqh, uh -huh. giving it life and meaning and such. Okay, let's stop right here. Yeah. You know, make a note or a mental note that we'll start right after this uh, Quranic recit. Uh, Can we actually start before? Because I, I didn't fully understand the connection. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashadu Allah. Ilaha illa Anta.